this play as a text and what this play is on stage, there's always a gap in those things in what theater is, right? Everybody, hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. We are excited to be tuning back in again with all of you out there in podcast land for another conversation about a great script. And today is kind of a special episode. It is a first in no script history, which is exciting. Not only are we talking about a really interesting, cool, fantastic, funny play, we're also talking about it for an interesting reason as to why it came to the podcast. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So so we're talking today about uh, Men on Boats, which is a play by Jacqueline Backus. First time we've talked about Jacqueline Backus on the on the podcast. So it's exciting to get into uh, this play. It's a great play with a lot of fun things that it's playing with. Great staging, interesting uh, characters and interesting casting things. So I'm excited just to get to talk about the play. Right, yes. Discussing this play would be an awesome privilege on its own. It's an exciting script. It's something that I think is doing a lot of really interesting things. It's the kind of theater I really, really love and am especially fond of for so many reasons. So all of that is cool. But this is also cool because this is the first sponsored episode in No Script History. Yes, indeed. So this week, in lieu of our normal kind of Patreon moment, we want to take a second and thank our sponsor, Joanna and Roger. Um, they both uh, are actually patrons of the show um, and are both at that playwright level uh, and get producer credit. Uh, I believe we thanked Roger for his uh, pr producer or his playwright level last week, and we're thanking Joanna for her level this week. But also they reached out and asked if... We had ever uh, heard of Men on Boats and if it was a play that we'd want to do, and we said absolutely. So they very generous, generously offered to sponsor this episode. Um, they are going to be doing a production of this play um, at the Black Hills Community Theater in Rapid City, South Dakota. So uh, they were excited to kind of give this play to us and hear us talk about it. So thank you. Thank you so much to Joanna and Roger for sponsoring this episode, and we'd be excited to continue doing something like this in the future. So uh, if, if you have a play that you really want us to talk about, you can find our email, uh, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us. We'd love to be able to talk to you about possibly doing that. But for today, thank you so much, Joanna and Roger. It's a pleasure to get to do this play that you asked us to do. Yes, right. And and it's it's great that their supporter is separate from anything else. We love our supporters. We're so grateful for the folks that make doing the podcast possible. And then it's great that they reached out. So that's a cool step, too. We love it when people email us. We have conversations on social media, like in the comments section and through posts. We have conversations by email. So reaching out, that was kind of a cool step on its own, too. And then being interested in this sponsorship was another cool episode. So they chose to sponsor this episode. 
know, for us, I think it, it, it would be a really great privilege to get to talk about scripts because they were going to be produced or used in an educational setting. So if you've got a production of a script coming up or scheduled for the next season or you're considering a production of a play at your local theater, whatever level of theater you work at, or if you work at a school, a high school or a college and you've got plays in your season or you've got plays in your drama classes, that kind of stuff would be, I think, really fascinating to bring scripts to the table that have a life outside of just us talking about them on the podcast. That makes doing this podcast really feel that that connective tissue out into the way theater exists in the outside world, outside of our recording studios. Yeah, it's exciting to be getting to do theater that's being done by all of you out there. So yeah, definitely reach out if you have a play in mind. We'd love to have a conversation about it. Yes, and Please, please do that. I don't. I don't think I have anything to add. That was right. Please do it. <laughs> please. please. Yeah. We really. This is a great privilege to get to do it. And this was a script that I. I don't know about you, Jackson. Was not on my radar at all. And it was brought to us. And it's a script that I love. So uh, it was just an exciting privilege to get to discover something new like this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, had a. I mean, I'm not not going to get into your context. I don't want to steal much of your context. Yeah, but come on. Had a, had a nice Broadway run and has been doing a lot of regional houses. So I'm excited to get to talk about it. Right. So let's now back to the script on into our conversation. I I don't know. I tried to turn that phrase into like something that we do. Let's <laughs> now back to the script. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It worked or it didn't work. You liked it or you didn't like it. <laughs> Shoot us an email. To me. I don't know. <laughs> probably not about that. You probably won't get an answer if you like that or not. Probably not. Like yep. We got we got to we got to control our time a little bit. Okay, so Men on Boats, Jacqueline Backus. This play premiered uh, as part of a festival with the Playwrights Horizon Clubbed Thumb in 2015 as part of the Wild Project, and then Playwrights Horizon was able to present that production again. That, that was in 2016, so five- or six-year-old play now. Interestingly, I looked up the cast for the Playwrights Horizon production. Uh, Jocelyn Bio, who wrote Schoolgirls or the African-American Mean Girls play, we talked about that a couple of seasons ago, I hope in that episode, I didn't go back to check, that we mentioned that she's an actor because she was uh, one of the performers in that Playwrights Horizon kind of... It's a little tricky to get into what's a world premiere and what's like a a staged workshop production and at what point all that kind of finishes off. In terms of what it says, you know, in the front of the script as to the publishing, they're going to say that it was Playwrights Horizon in 2016 that did that world premiere. Um, And Jocelyn Bio played Hawkins. Uh, Jackson will describe for you the characters i'm sure it's gone on and had quite a bit of a life outside of that uh places like the baltimore center stage did a production 2019 the son of semile semile theater in los angeles i'm not sure how to pronounce that they did a 2019 production there was a production at the open stage theater company in 2020 in fort collins i have a whole list that kind of theaters like that that I could name and give you lists of productions. I know that there was a production near the area where I am. I tried to find the name of the theater, but I couldn't manage to grab hold of that. So there, there's that. And of course, now the Black Hills Community Playhouse in Rapid City, South Dakota is doing a production of this play. The play was a 2015, uh, it was on the Kilroy's Playlist, and the Kilroy's Playlist is um, includes, I'm just reading from their website now, includes the results of our annual industry survey of excellent new plays by women, trans, and non-binary playwrights. So it made that list. It was an NYC Critics pick, so uh, it was really enjoyed by lots of folks. We, you know, we love to read reviews and kind of engage with the material, and almost across the board, there was a kind of excitement and, and freshness about this drama 
Obama response that was um, uh, laughter, it was joy, it was um, kind of reveling in the strange, interesting things that Jacqueline Backus does that Jackson will describe for you. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to jump right into some synopsis of the play, give you kind of a broad strokes of this play, and then we'll jump into the conversation around it. This play, I'm just going to read the setting because it fairly sums it up fairly well about the kind of overarching meta action of the play. The setting is on boats in 1869, traversing the Green and Colorado Rivers from Wyoming to a big canyon on the government's first sanctioned expedition. That is a lot of the action of the play. We are with uh, this group of explorers um, pushing out the map-making ability of the United States um, and uh, traversing these rivers together. And we, we follow with them as they journey from Wyoming along these rivers down into kind of the Utah area of the country. Now, that's the that's the broad sweep of the action. The, we, we, we go through two acts of, of them traveling down the rivers. However, during that time, the true, like... Uh, uh, grit of this play is in the characters themselves. We get to know these true characters. These uh, this this is a true story from history. True-ish, I believe, one uh, production named in its dramaturgy. True-ish, I love that. True-ish. <laughs> yeah, we we get to know a bunch of these characters, and they're all split up in the script by which boat they are on. There are four boats at the start of the play. Uh, <laughs> foreshadowing. Um, you have uh, aboard the Emma Dean. Uh, John Wesley Powell, who is a one-armed leader of the expedition, he is kind of the one who uh, is doing a lot of the mapping and has and knows the president. He's the one who got the job. Um, he gathered the crew. We have William Dunn, who is the hunter and trapper. A lot of the action of the play is between Dunn and Powell, um, or at least a lot of the tension of the play is between Dunn and Powell. You have John Colton Sumner, a former soldier. You have Old Shady, who's Powell's older brother, also a Civil War vet. You have Bradley, who's the kind of young, uh, energetic, Jedink one. You, uh, oh, and those two, I forgot. Those two are aboard the other boat, Kitty Clyde Sister. So Old Shady and Bradley are on Kitty Clyde's Sister. We have another boat, which is <laughs> awesomely called the No Name. Um, and aboard that boat is OG, OG Howland, uh, Seneca Howland, and Frank Goodman. Uh, both OG and Seneca are brothers, and then Frank Goodman is very British. Occasion occasionally the stage directions say, oh, so Britishly, or something like that. Um, and then finally, the fourth boat is aboard the Maid of the Canyon. Um, and that boat has Hall, who is a map maker, um, an old soul, his character description says, and Hawkins, the cook. Now, all of these characters are, are surviving rapids. Like, the complicating action of this play is so much of they hit rapids, they hit another section of the river, they have to struggle to overcome uh, the, the rapids of the, and the river, and they lose stuff, they lose supplies, some people go overboard, they lose a boat at one point, and all the time they're getting amplified in their uh, anger towards each other. A lot of uh, uh, anger between Dunn, or not really anger, but differences of, of leaders opinion between Powell and Dunn happen over and over. And Powell is the leader of the expedition, so he often wins out, and uh, and Dunn kind of goes along with it for a certain extent of the time. Um, eventually, one by one, people start to drop off. No one uh, dies off on stage. <laughs> <laughs> necessarily um, the first the first to kind of say this has gotten a little bit too much for me is 
Um, Frank Goodman, the, the, the British guy, he was kind of on it just because he had money and he could be adventuring. And so they uh, go off and, and, and kind of drop him off at one of the, uh, the, the villages nearby. They meet a number of first, or, or the First Nation chief of that village, um, whose name I'm going to try to pronounce, but forgive me, is Tsuwati. And uh, Tsuwati's wife, who is in the script as the bishop. Um, and they, they kind of let uh, Frank Goodman off there, and he he kind of leaves the story. And then they continue on. They're running out of stores. They get to the Big Canyon, but they don't know how long the Big Canyon actually is. So at that point, um, Dunn and the two brothers, uh, the two um, uh, Seneca and Goodman, uh, decide to leave. And uh, they, they decide to uh, leave the party, strike out for the cliff face and try to get out of the river. Just though the day after, like the bend around the river is the end of the journey. So the rest of the party makes it to the end. They meet the final character introduced as Mr. Asa or Mr. Asa, who's a desert settler and kind of uh, denouements us out of this, gives them some context for what has happened. So that's the, that's the kind of action of the play. That's the yeah right. That's like the story that is the what's in the text, like between the characters, the external environment. But there's this theatrical level too, right? Like the play is both what's going on in the story and what's going on on stage more than maybe some other experiences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the other, like, the the big thing that I haven't said yet, as I've said, I've said a bunch of guys' names, and the cast has not one m- man in it, right? The the, the cast is a, a completely gender-flipped cast. All um, women are playing these roles. Uh, the stage direction specifically calls for uh, the characters in Men on Boats were historically cisgendered white males. The cast should be made up of entirely people <laughs> who are not. Um, so, so, uh, and, and what, what is not is, is pretty broad in, in her definition. I'm talking about racially diverse actors who are female identifying, trans identifying, gender fluid and or non-gender conforming. So the whole cast, though a male in history is played by non-male actors. Yeah. It's a really cool, I don't know. There's a great interview with Jacqueline Backus. There's lots of interviews, as you can imagine about this kind of a show. And she says something along the lines of, I was writing this play that was inspired a lot by the uh, John Wesley Powell's journals as, as they're traversing this river, these several rivers. And so she's coming up with this play based on these journals that were inspiring and interesting. At one point she calls him sort of a wannabe poet. I mean, she, the, the, what's in the journals was creating this, this story about what was going on in her mind. And then she says, and this is from her interview, I realized I was writing a play that I could never be be cast in because these are all white men from history. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge part of kind of her inspiration around it. I I had a quote from an interview that I heard from her was she was, she was working with trying to take the idea of male conquest and give it to someone who doesn't normally have that right. And, and in doing that, that's the end of the quote. These, these are now my words. And, and in doing that, she kind of throws into relief how much uh, of culture is um, focused on white cisgendered male um, storylines. And what, what, what does it look like if we flip the script a little bit, if we give this story to another group of people and let their voices and their bodies tell this story? And that extends 
not only in like the theatrical staged landscape uh, in terms of how the play is put into space, is physicalized, but she's sort of taken that perspective on this story and then written it into the text as well. You'll get exchanges throughout the play that sort of go, um, I thought we were the first ones to be exploring this river. Well, native people have explored it forever. Uh, is this so, you know, it, it, this, this might be too dangerous well there's been people who figured out how to safely traverse this river for as long as the rivers existed i mean it, not quite exactly those words it's not a quote but the bringing into bringing into the story the fact that this is just one account by a specific people group of the journeys of this river is part of what she's doing textually too Right, it's like a zoom in on these characters. I think one of the one of my favorite zoom ins in this is the section around uh, Powell and Dunn are on this cliff. They're mapping their course out for the next day, and they have this really interesting conversation around naming a mountain. Um, Dunn has been trying to get a mountain named after him for <laughs> for a good chunk of the script, and uh, and there's been rules set about how we name things and all that business. And finally, in this instance, he and uh, Dunn and Powell are alone on this mountain, and Powell says. What if we name that mountain after you? Um, and it fits all the rules that they laid out, which are these these great set of like three rules. Um, and and so they name it after him. And there's this great reflection by Dunn, who's like, "Wow, that's that's different. That means something. Maybe I'll go and live on that mountain." And then there's the follow up reflection by Powell, who says, "Yeah, I mean, this is kind of weird though, because there's probably been people who have named that mountain before. We're just." the new ones who are naming it. Um, so so all of that is held so beautifully in the tension of that little scene. And there's like when, when they encounter the Ute couple, this First Nation couple, and there's um, they're describing how the government like gave them back their land after it had, you know, it, historically they've lived on that land for generations, but the government is so generous to give us back. this. So there's yeah. there's that kind of stuff that's layered into the text too. Interestingly, Jack Abacus says that even in Powell's journals, then that's the perspective of a, you know, a, a white man even through the journals, you can sort of get the sense of the Ute people's disregard for them and the sort of eye-rolling behavior is how she interpreted what she was reading from Powell's journals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so all these characters are are kind of feeling like they're on the frontier of something, frontier of, of finding something new, of charting something new. There's information that they don't have about the world. And that's an exciting feeling for them. It's interesting to see, though, the ones who start to... Um, waver a bit I think especially of of uh, Frank Goodman right who's 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 in it for the adventure in some ways we get like little glimpses into archetypes of characters in in these uh, individual characters the way Bacchus has written them you get uh you know the adventure type you get the tracker type you get the you know the the brothers who have kind of found their camaraderie in the wilderness you get the the uh yeah just all these archetypes and I, I wonder what exactly that is kind of leading us towards, what these characters are um, uh, willing to commit to to discover this new frontier. Right, and, and the sort of 
privilege of being able to play tourist in this kind of um, environment, whereas the men who are hired by the government, this it's it's not their their engagement, their level of commitment, as you describe it, is is necessarily going to be different than something like Frank. He says, um, you know, I, I'm an adventurer only so far, <laughs> right. only so far as it makes sense, where the risk analysis makes sense, and it has stopped making sense. Mm-hmm. There's another really great scene, one of the best monologues in the play, I think, um, and it's Powell's monologue, and it's in one of these instances where Dunn has uh, kind of criticized Powell's leadership, and and I, I think I'm going to start, as much as possible, I'm going to start referring to them as she, because that's one of the really great things about picturing this play, um, is is uh, picturing it in your head as, as women playing these roles. Um, and so, Dunn, she has criticized Powell, and Powell has this great monologue where she just says, you all are just here because I brought you. Like, you like being in the wilderness. You're here for an adventure. You're here because you like to shoot bears, Dunn. But I'm here because I know the president. <laughs> And I was given a job to do. And it's just a great monologue that kind of really brings into focus the difference between Powell and the rest of them. Even uh, Something I forgot to mention in, the, in my synopsis is Powell um, only has one arm. Um, and he, uh, she's, she's, she's doing this whole thing. She's leading this whole thing with only one arm. And so over and over that comes up. That's one of Dunn's big criticisms of Powell in this scene is... is she can't row the same way as everyone else or, or can't pitch in the same way as everyone else. So this is a really kind of powerful scene where, where, where Powell sets the stakes differently and says, this is why I'm in charge. This is why you should follow me. And uh, she's, she's uh, lauded for that by like a slow clap, I think, that starts at the end of her big monologue. <laughs> Well, and and the argument is not just that I know the president, but also I'm the most experienced river runner. And this has all come as the result of a decision Powell made to run a section of the river rather than portage, um, which led to one of their boats capsizing. The boat got destroyed. They lost a bunch of supplies. Notably, the boat's name was the No Name. So (laughs) (laughs) if there was going to be a boat that went down... (laughs) It's like wearing a red shirt in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but but that, that and that that situation is you know, is part of the dramatic action of the script related to the conflict between Powell and Dunn, which is one of the central interpersonal conflicts. This script is really interesting, you know, if you take like let's call it freshman intro to lit class. You might learn about different kinds of plots. And one of the kinds of plots you might learn about is uh, human versus nature. And this play has a lot of that in it, right? There's a lot of external threats, which are not based on choices made by the characters. They're made by, it's just the danger of the river, or there's a rattlesnake, or you might fall off the side of a cliff, or or things like that. And so there's that kind of dramatic action, and then there's dramatic action where the, the relationships of the crew, as they traverse this river bring us some interesting plot fodder too. And and the most notable of those, as you said in your synopsis, is the leadership conflict between Powell and Dunn. Uh, one reviewer had sort of called Powell a kind of nerdy, um, 
not quite competent expedition leader who's pretending to know a lot more than Powell actually does. And it's interesting then that Jacqueline Bach has called him sort of a wannabe poet. There's this sense that that Powell is uh, pretending more confidence, more knowledge than perhaps is actually there. And that's that's what Dunn's accusation would be anyway. Dunn is kind of that archetypal dissatisfied second right? I could run this thing better than you. Which is interesting that it comes to a head, especially that that bit about knowing information that is not actually there. Powell in general actually has like a pretty optimistic view all the time as as a, a leader of, a, of an expedition into an unmapped region must, right? Um, and and so over and over, Powell thinks that, you know, just around the river, we're going to find something or we're going to find more food at our next stop or something like that. So it's interesting to watch that um, reflected and and rewarded at the end of the play. Right. That's the the the, the kind of faith that Powell has in the expedition um, on information that that she doesn't actually have is is rewarded by the end and, and done. Uh, is hinted at paying the ultimate price for uh, her own uh, uh, hubris, maybe, but it's not even really hubris. Just her different way of leadership that 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 she, that she thinks that that uh, you know acting on what you know is the better choice rather than believing in in a solution being presented on the other side. Well, and also that like level of risk analysis, right? This is what Goodman says when Goodman originally pulls out is that, you know, the risk assessment of this no longer makes sense. And Goodman is the first to go because Goodman is a tourist, basically, on this expedition. And it's just gotten too dangerous, too hard. They're almost out of food. But Dunn leads a little mutiny with the Howland brothers. Um, and, and mutiny is maybe not the right word. Leads a... Uh, they abandon the exposition, right? Yeah, they leave. Yeah. Um, and so their risk assessment is it no longer makes sense for us to go on. Yeah, yeah. That's that's their so their kind of dynamic in them separating and leaving um, uh, is is one of the kind of final blow moments where 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 an in, uh, what's the immovable and immovable thing the immovable. Object uh, meets an unstoppable force. force. An there it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of what ends up happening. These two can no longer uh, go down the same road together, and and Dunn, yep, Dunn and the the Howland brothers have to kind of split off and splinter off from that belief that Powell has. And it, it, the play really, I think, needs these interpersonal conflicts to be as satisfying as it is because the, I think as I initially described as I started talking about this, the conflict versus the river is not dramatic in the sense that we mean dramatic, right? It's it's full of drama and that the stakes are high, but it's not dramatic in that people are making choices against each other where you're, you know, you try to use tactics to combat somebody else's goal, where the polar attitudes are going to be confronted and brought together. All of that kind of human drama is not really represented in the men versus river, which is not to say that it's uninteresting because it is vast interesting. It's fascinating even to read the yeah. how Jack and Bacchus has taken something like running a river and asked you to bring that to a stage. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so I did a little bit of research, and there are some, there is some footage of that Playwrights Horizon uh, production. I think only one clip that I could find, but there's plenty of other clips out there of cast being given this incredible prompt <laughs> to make a river with four boats in which you put <laughs> actors in separate boats and things like getting jammed between two rocks and using rope to pull yourself free. What incredible ensemble work for, for a group of actors to get to do. What incredible body work to be uh, interpreting this, this incredible force of a river which the whole ensemble is arranged against um, and, and, and tr without obviously without having a, a rushing river on stage or boats uh, necessarily for you to be in. And what's so fascinating about them, especially as they relate to the interpersonal stuff, is that it really in order to combat the river effectively, the combat that is amongst the characters has to be set aside, right? Everybody has to be on the same team. And that's one of the things that I think is what is so well written about the river scenes is the interplay between the rowers in the same boat and then between the boats. Um, some of it is just cool script formatting if you're interested in how scripts get turned into pages you might buy a copy of the script or try to find one where you can sort of see how she has decided to do it with these bolded headings to indicate who's on what boat and who they're talking to so there's some of that but also just the imagination and i would guess some of it is based on research into like maybe whitewater rafting teams or something like that that would exist today as well as reading from powell's journal the way that the boats called to each other about the challenges that are facing, right? I mean, in order to get everybody safely along the river, the budding heads has to be set aside for a while. Yeah, it had like you 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 need to uh, relinquish your your opinions for the for the common good for the for the whole group to get down the river. And yeah, that's powerfully worked out in things like like I mentioned, throwing rope and 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 the kind of camaraderie there. Many times, characters fall into the river um, and and go like out of sight for a while. And that those are really compelling scenes too for the characters um, characters who we know are in conflict with each other to be unified around this. Our, our comrade is in the river. We got to get him out. <laughs> um, and so, so that yeah, the river as the adversary provides this this other field on which you see the the uh, interpersonal issues being set aside. Um, doesn't decrease them at all, as as we know that once they're once they're back on land or back off the river, um, they're they're still there. They're still boiling under the surface. But it's compelling to see them. Uh, team up and and ensemble around each other uh, for for those those river scenes. In some ways, you sort of end up with two plays. You end up with the play of what happens on the banks. You know, it, it's not really a shore. If you've ever been to a place like the Grand Canyon or other large canyons, there's not really a shore so much as there's like a little area on the side. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so the bank, right? And so... Uh, th there's like the play of what goes on there at camp when you're pulled off to the side of the river to have lunch, when you're climbing the side, scaling the side of the canyon. There's that play, and that play has a protagonist and an antagonist in a more traditional sense. I think you could pretty reasonably say Powell and Dunn, um, right? The one protagonist ultimately does win over one antagonist. Powell does make it out, survive the canyon with the crew. Dunn is proved wrong. So there's that story. 
And then there's the play of the humans versus the river or the humans versus the canyon. And really, they all become one protagonist at that moment. And that's what's so fascinating. It's like, how do you take these two plays, these two journeys where you've got humans in all of their infinite complexity and all of their antagonism and all of that, and then how do you take that and mirror that story with something that is like the height of human togetherness. Yeah. I mean, I've been Whitewater <laughs> Ravner, right? It's a team effort, and it is like it's the most I'm just part of this communal thing experience that I've like ever had in my life, where it's just like all I'm doing is I'm this corner, and I don't yeah. have any agency really besides being this corner of this boat. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's 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 like putting these these characters into a pressure cooker, right? And and the pressure cooker around them is 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 this river and if if everyone doesn't pull their own weight, it's not going to work. Um which which is which is different I think too. I want to go back to something you said. I I I agree that structure-wise in the play, um uh, Powell is is protagonist to Dunn's antagonist. However, um, I don't I don't see Dunn as like the vernacular of what antagonist is, right? It not not really a, a a villain. I don't think any of these characters are really villains. You can kind of see that in the way that they end up parting ways. Uh, Powell, Powell like sends them with their blessing, and uh, the cook character uh, Hawkins, I think, is the cook. Like makes biscuits for them, and uh, out of their very few supplies. So there is this sense that like. Um, uh, it's just so different worldviews, such different, um, uh, priorities for each of these characters that they can't continue. You even have Powell saying, I wish this was different, um, uh, as, as kind of the final thing Powell says to Dunn. So you have that kind of, you have that kind of murkiness there on shore too. It's not, it's not a clear cut protagonist and, and antagonist, which I think is even helped even more by the river where you get a real clear, we will die to this river if we don't band together. Um, and, 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 and so, so, so that in relief of each other is also really, really sharp and really well balanced between those two. I agree. Those two like kind of sub plays within this play. And what are, well, the moments that stood out to me and, and I, it was interesting. A lot of times when you come back to a play and you read it several times or you see it several times, different things stand out. But every time I read this play, the, the same moments stood out to me or uh, these these moments always stood out to me. Different things stood out every time. But then there were some moments that always stood out. And to me, those were moments when the play about the what happens on the banks and the play about what happens on the rivers intersect just briefly. And there are moments like when they, uh, when on the bank, on the, uh, where they've, they've scaled a canyon, they look down on the river, and Dunn says, we should port a jet section, and Powell says, no, we're going to run it. So now they're running it, and the, they've lost the boat. And you hear Dunn yell, we should have portaged this section, Powell. And you know yeah. that that is the, just that briefest little nudge of that, that part of the play sticking its head up into the river part of the play. Or one that always, I, I loved this moment, is when now that they've lost the boat, they've had to redistribute what people are on what boats, and so the boats are much more crowded. And that means that uh, some people don't, you know, the roles on your boat have changed. And so they're they're going through a section of the river, and Goodman doesn't know what side to row on. 
I mean, he has to ask, what what should I do? And that's, again, that head peaks its, the, the human conflict peaks its head up above the human versus nature conflict. And I, to me, those moments are so special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another moment that sticks out to me is right after they've lost the boat, you get a scene with Powell and Dunn separate from each other. And you get to see their kind of two different styles of, of of leading away from each other. And in that scene, Dunn is like diving into the water and and trying to call out to his whoever's in the in the in the boat with him. I forget who's with him in that scene, but kind of like really going forward, diving into the water, recovering stores, recovering the uh, map making supplies they need, recovering the whiskey that they really need. Um, and then in the other scene, you have Powell um, with Bradley kind of struggling to get up a mountain with his with his uh one arm and you see him actually in need of help and in the scene with bradley he he has to ask for help um and and is eventually pulled up onto the mountain which is uh, interesting to have those two scenes in relief of each other um uh seeing them in seeing the two people who are trying to lead this expedition but separate from each other with with other characters yeah, and you're right that, that that scene is so interesting because it's the only time where a river scene and a bank scene play next to each other. Otherwise, it's pretty clear cut, right? We are either in the world of shore and camp and that and what's going to go on between the humans or we're on the river and the conflict is going to be, can we survive this particular run of the river? And this is the one moment in the play where those two things happen simultaneously. There is a conflict on the bank and a conflict on the river. And there are plenty of other like uh, interpersonal conflict moments too that aren't directly in relation to uh, Powell and Dunn. You have this this kind of great action around tobacco going missing and and wondering uh, you know whether or not that's going to be a, a thing that blows up. But that's where you see I, I think the kind of other. Um, kind of question narrative of the shore scenes, um, which is, will this team stick together with this, this team of people who are all really different, who have things that irk each other that, that, and, and, and you know, which one will the other follow, which, who will go to Dunn's side, who will go to Powell's side. Um, you have this dynamic of, I think it's the Howland brothers again, who are, who have this, this plan to steal tobacco basically, and then try to try to uh, make off with some of the tobacco, which comes to a head fairly early in the play. It's brought up. Powell says, basically figure this out. I don't smoke. So, so you get, there's there's extra tobacco. Figure it out. You'll be fine. And then then it goes away. You have a couple of those sort of recurring things. There's a rattlesnake that makes its way into the camp, and I think it gets really close to Bradley. And Bradley has just saved Powell's life on the cliff. And uh, Powell's brother, uh, Old Shady, uh, is is one of the people around around the campfire, and he's really worried about it. But I think it's Hawkins who like swings over and clobbers the thing with a pot. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, you have all of these really interesting kind of wonderings with these archetypal characters around how are they lining up? How are their how are their uh, character flaws rubbing up against each other? And and are they able to come together to survive this river? And it never seems to me that the answer is no. I mean, do you yeah. feel like I'm wrong about that? I mean, it, it never does seem like, other than the moments where you just get a little peek at the human conflict, but it never seems like the um, 
the terrible tension that is that exists between the humans really negatively impacts what goes on on the river, at least at face value. And I and I think that uh, you that sort of deeper level that you start to look at is you start to wonder about why somebody like Powell makes the decisions that Powell makes. And so does the desire to be seen as a really strong leader, especially by Dunn, who I think is kind of naturally a strong leader, does that make him make bad decisions like we're going to run this section of the river rather than portage it? I mean, can you start to look at the decisions that are made which impact what goes on on the river and then attribute those to what is being developed in these characters' psyches by the conflict. Yeah, which which also comes to life in in Goodman, I think. You kind of see it, it's it's really great. I, I got a sense from it just from reading it. His kind of slow devolve from his like happiness or or maybe not happiness but excitement at being uh, on the frontier of something of exploring something. And you just see see Goodman slowly slowly lose that excitement because of what happens on the river because of dropped paddles and and boats capsized and and the kind of realities around around the, uh, the, the, the hard work that, that uh, surviving a river is. So yeah, you, you, get, you get each of these uh, kind of interpersonal things worked out on, on the river itself. And because they live in this, this weird world where, right, where they're on the bank in the morning and they can have out whatever humans have to have out, right? I want to have power. You want to have power. We have to confront this conflict. We have to make this decision. But then the minute that they start floating, all of that has to go away or you're going to die. It makes the tensions of them when we're back on the bank and we have all of the hardship of the day as well as all the stuff we're carrying from the morning, from last night, from camp before that we haven't been able to have out on the river. I mean, it makes the bank scenes have so much um, power. But I wonder, Jackson, this is a hard thing because we've not seen it, if that is really the experience that you'd have walking away from the play. Are the river scenes so spectacular that they overwhelm the human plot, right? I mean, you got Aristotle and he's got this hierarchy of theatrical elements and, you know, we've all disregarded that in so many ways or we've chosen to (laughs) abide by it. I mean, the, the, the perspectives on what Aristotle said about the hierarchy of plot at the top versus spectacle and music and such at the bottom, this is a play maybe where that hierarchy is much more clouded. Yeah, I know that's a that's a great point and it's something to look out for. I, I think the 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 visceralness of the uh water scenes um kind of give you that deep breath on shore, but then you you like I think that the character tension is so palpable there once you're on shore that it's like you're getting you're getting uh, both sides of the same coin are, is the wrong analogy, but you're getting a, such a good balance of two different kites, types of drama. You, as as we said earlier, you have you have the the drama of 
of spectacle, of these people surviving, of yelling from boat to boat, of whatever action the cast has come up with to show the rapids of the river and these people in a boat um, and capsizing boats and dr almost drowning and all of that energy in that scene, whatever lighting kind of special things you get to do with that. And then you come to the river and you're like, Whew, or I'm sorry, to the bank. And you're like, Whew, deep breath slow build to character and and internal drama and and that i just think it's this beautiful ebb and flow of scenes or, or between the scenes where you get uh both both uh boxes of drama checked well i i want to push back a little bit because i think what makes the play so engaging is that what you want to happen in regards to what you just said doesn't happen. And what I mean Ooh. is, and this is probably why so many of the guys decide to leave, right? Is that you, you have these incredibly challenging, physically, mentally challenging days on the river. And then as the audience, you see the spectacular, incredible, powerful, river choreography and, and the challenge of facing down nature and survival and you come to the bank and the characters just want to say uh <laughs> but they can't right and part of what Jack and Bacchus has done is is taken away all the moments where they just go ah and given us the drama on on the bank and so as an audience member you sort of are, you you really live in the shoes of one of these characters where the rest that you want to have, you, you almost can't have. You don't get that breath because there's interpersonal human things going on too. And if if you were in an ideal world, right, everybody loves each other 100% of the time and you're perfect teammates <laughs> on the river and then you get off and you all relax and you all have kumbaya love and, and all this great stuff. But of course, that's not really what happens. It's true. It's true. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And there's other elements that begin to break in, like snakes, like starvation, like wetness that still follows you to the to the river. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, <laughs> it is almost kind of a full court press sort of thing. Uh, no matter which way these characters go. Right. So and so the, in the play, you've got this incredible spectacle of river running choreography. I don't know how you want to do it in your production. I know how probably how I would do it, but I'm, I'm only one director of the many that are going to do this piece. Um, so you've got that element. You've got this uh, kind of, you know, psychological drama, right, of what's going to go on when we have to survive and we have these combating attitudes about survival and leadership. The other thing that you've got in this play that I love particularly and personally because I just love using this kind of stuff in theater is the beautiful poetry of the journals like listen to this section this is the start of act three they've just entered what the script calls the big canyon wink wink nudge nudge uh, is Powell saying and now the scene is on a grand scale marble walls thousands of feet high many beautiful colors polished and sheen by the waves embossed with fantastic patterns fretted with strange devices a succession of pools clear and cool and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and the play kind of ends with that kind of a description too and this beautiful imagery of these canyons. 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's another really beautiful what is a stage direction um, about them exiting the the big canyon and into the expansive land beyond. And that's another really beautiful section. This this script is just full of these really um, beautiful, expansive, or uh, uh, whatever whatever narrowing word you want to use for the canyon images. <laughs> um, uh, specific, I guess. Um, descriptions of beauty of of the the kind of terrible beauty of wilderness around these characters that flows its way certainly uh, vocally through the journals, but then also somehow through the performance of the actors, because that whole stage direction of them exiting the canyon is 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 meant to be felt in some way, and so that's kind of the the kind of fun responsibility of the actors in exiting the canyon to evoke that beautiful poetry. So that's a third element, right? You've got incredible spectacle of the river running. You've got incredible psychological drama between the men on shore. You've got incredibly beautiful poetry. And the other thing that you have, which is where our conversation started, is the challenge of the particular lens, right? This this view back on these white men in history and their belief and, you know, the, the sort of the manifest destiny of it all. Let me say it that way, right? Which this idea of white people expanding and owning this territory and the lens that Jacqueline Bacchus takes looking back on the story. And it's added to by the casting and it's added to by the nods in the text that she makes and it's added to by the complexity of the ending. I'm I'm glad we got to the ending because I think uh, uh, Mr. Asa or Asa um, is kind of ends up bringing that tone back at the end of the play. Um, there's this this it's kind of <laughs> kind of this uh, interesting denouement, and I think uh, um, I think it is a denouement. If you, at least if you think the climax is surviving the river and reaching this point, where where uh, this character comes on and says. You know, don't 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 worry so much about those other guys who are probably dead, Dunn and the and the Hallen brothers. Um, you'll be fine, Powell. You're gonna get your job in the in the government, and and yeah, the rest of you all will you know co- continue being adventuring types. Some of you will like die on your adventures or die in a tavern or something like that. But that's fine. Don't worry about. It. I'll tell my kids that I found you on the bank of the river, and and it'll all be good. You'll all be part of history for this moment. You are a part of history. And that's like, it's just, it has this weight to it, right? This weight of perspective of, of what they were trying to do, right? That you spend so much time with these characters and their grand visions of frontier finding and, and mapping wilderness and thinking that they're the first people to do so. And then you have this kind of perspective crash in, in this, in this, this final character that they meet. Right. And, and the perspective, that question of what, what was the purpose of this, right? What, yeah. what this grand uh, adventure down the river? What, what was this all for? And Powell is going to go on to be well lauded for it, and the rest of the men he describes are going to go on to live in relative obscurity. What, what was all of this really about? Um, in an interview with uh, How I Round, which is, a, a, I guess, a theater website. It's not something I had come across before, but there's an interview with Jacqueline uh, Backus about this, about why, why she took this lens, why she told the story in this way. 
And this is what she says. It's a, it's a nice little paragraph. So I'm, I'm going to read the whole paragraph. It's a little bit lengthier than we usually quote. But I think it's important to hear this. She says, The main problem for me is that by rewarding this story with an adaption or a retelling, you are rewarding the people who populated it and who committed to this mission. Ultimately, you are rewarding the no-holds-barred manifest destiny that this country was founded on. And that resulted in a lot of harm and distress for a lot of people. At the same time, I fell in love with a lot of these characters' hearts while I was writing them. They're very ragtag and idiosyncratic. There's a lot of glory and a lot of joy. I guess the problem for me was still finding the glory very glorious when there's this other side to it. In theory, it can read as a kind of joyride. It's a summer blockbuster. We're going down the river. We're all drinking. But there's this other side as well. Yeah, that 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 weight of of loving these characters, getting to know them, getting to know like really great scenes like uh, uh, oh, I forget which character is who talks about sleep, going to sleep in a tree um, and just loving getting to sleep in a tree. Another character talking about their dreams of going up to the Yukon and continuing exploration. You get to know these characters, you get to know their stories and, and yet that that weight that that weight of of the retelling of of a story um, is is a compelling one, and that's what that's what a, a compelling reason to do theater to live in that tension between those stories and to present it in a format which changes the narrative, which casts different uh, bodies, different types of people into those roles and allows their voices uh, a chance at the story. Yeah, and it's interesting because the casting of it impacts so much of the experience, and this is one area in which this podcast, there's a gap, right? Because we're not commenting on a specific production. In this case, we haven't even seen it. I mean, we've seen a lot of plays, but we haven't seen this play at all. Um, It's a relatively new play. And how the story is experienced with those uh, racially diverse, female-identifying, gender-fluid, trans-identifying, this whole group of people who are, uh, you know, group of people now who are not involved in the story then and how those two worlds come together for an experience it's it's really it's amazing to try to imagine as you read and i have to imagine it's amazing to see and that that is certainly what the reviews have indicated i mean one of yeah. the reasons why we engage with reviews is that they're uh, comments on specific productions and the experience of it and almost across the board the reviewers comment on this strange wonderful intersection yeah it's that kind of revisionist history sort of um um, i I read a new york times review that compared it to hamilton and the work that hamilton did in kind of taking another run at history and and telling it through different people through different eyes so yeah it's this it's this really interesting uh i think like (laughs) a, a huge percentage of the experience is isn't actually seeing it and getting to see all these different actors playing these roles and it, it, it's uh, it's it's like it, it. I'll just quote the, this interview again because this is where this thought is coming from. The the interviewer asks Jacqueline, "Is is this a weird example of a feminist piece where there are no female characters?" Right. I mean, but that can only be true once the play is lived out on stage. Right. This play as a text and what this play is on stage. There's always a gap in those things in what theater is, right? But especially in a play 
play like this where once you take it and you bring it to space, you bring it to life, you put bodies in it, and those bodies are not the bodies that were in the original thing that happened in the 1860s or whatever, right? Then it becomes something different. And Jaka says, yes, I like to believe that this is a feminist play, even though every character save one is male. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that 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 is one of the the big energies of the show. Fortunately, or unfortunately for Jacob and I, um, we've not experienced it. But fortunately, there, I know for sure there are some of you out there who have or who will very soon. I mean, in this case, like literally, <laughs> we know. <laughs> we know for sure. Um, so we would love to keep having this conversation around men on boats with you, all of all of you out there in in podcast land. If you have seen this play, if you have been in this play if you've read it or seen some scenes and just like it enough to talk about it with us or to anyone else in the NoScript community our, our our social medias are a great place to do that you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the username at NoScript Podcast. We also have a Gmail NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about this play and your experiences of this play with all of you out there Absolutely. Hey, if you are around Rapid City, South Dakota, and you have a chance to go to the Black Hills Community Theater and see their production of Men on Boats, we are encouraging you to do that. Please go check it out because we would love to do that. Absolutely. It's not going to work out for us geographically, but I have a huge (laughs) desire to see this thing on stage. I wish I could be there and see this production in person as well. If you want to recommend this podcast to folks, uh, you can send them to Podbean, where where we're hosted. We're also on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, those kinds of places. You can like us on Facebook. Then you'll get a little notification about what's coming up on the podcast, as well as a link every Monday when we have new episodes, including this coming Monday. There'll be a new episode, another episode, another script to talk about. To Joanna and Roger, thank you for sponsoring this episode of No Script, the podcast. It's been a real joy to talk about men on boats. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. It's a great conversation. Until next week, when we are going to be talking about another script, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast. We'll see you. Men on boats? Is it boats? I think so. I think that is the traditional pronunciation (laughs) of (laughs) Boats. All right, enough goofing around.